Good morning. Good morning, everyone. So um, welcome. We're so glad to see everyone that is here today. Heavenly Father, we praise and thank you for your mercy. We thank you that you have gathered this flock of yours together, and we are in your hand, and we are blessed by your Holy Spirit, and we are led by your mercy and your grace. And Father, we thank you that you take care of our health, that you walk us through the, the valleys of uh, trial that, that stand before us here on this earth, and that you never leave us and you never forsake us. So we ask you be with us today, guide and direct this service, and uh, keep us in the palm of your hand. In Jesus' name, amen. It is with a heavy heart today that a friend of mine is being laid to rest back in Indiana uh, this morning or today sometime. And then I got word that another friend of mine in Christ um, passed away this weekend. And their lights, their little lights shone into my life and their little lights shone into many lights. And I found this devotion um, that kind of speaks to that. As we as believers, we have the light of the world shining in us and part of our fruit is to let that sh light shine into the darkness. So with that, let it shine. The light of righteousness rejoices. We are holding a light. We are to let it shine. Though it may seem like a twinkling candle in a world of darkness and blackness, it is our business to let it shine. Light dispels darkness, and it attracts people in the darkness to it. We are a blowing trumpet in the din and noise of battle the sound of our little trumpet may seem to be lost, but we must keep sounding the alarm to those who are in spiritual danger and don't know Christ. We are kindling a fire in this cold world filled with hatred and selfishness. Our little blaze may seem to be unveiling, unavailing, excuse me, but we must keep our fire burning. A little light, a little trumpet, a little fire. There seems so little, they seem so little amidst, amidst the darkness and the violence of the world. But with God, all things are possible. And he will bless our efforts to bring the good news of Jesus to a weary and strife-torn world. Hope for today. A single flame may not be much, each one of us, but a multitude of flames would be unstoppable. There are no solo acts in the body of Christ. Who do we need to link arms with?
15 begins with two questions and then we get the answers to them. Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? He who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. He who does not backbite with his tongue nor does evil to his neighbor nor does he take up a reproach against his friend in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but he honors those who fear the Lord. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change, he who does not put out his money at usury, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent, he who does these things shall never be moved. Amen. If you would like to stand with me, we will read through Psalm 23 together. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Yeah. 
Testament reading today comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6, verses 27 through 38. But to you who are willing to listen, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who hurt you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, offer the other cheek also. If someone demands your coat, offer your shirt also. Give to anyone who asks. And when things are taken away from you, don't try to get them back. Do to others as you would like them to do to you. If you love only those who you love, why should you get credit for that? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do only do good only to those who do good to you, why should you get credit? Even sinners do that much. And if you lend money only to those who can repay you, why should you get credit? Even sinners who lend to other sinners for a full return. Love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend them to them without expecting to be repaid. Then your reward from heaven will be very great, and you will truly be acting as children of the Most High. For he is kind to those who are unthankful and wicked. You must be compassionate, just as your Father is compassionate. Do not judge others, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn others, or it will come back against you. Forgive others and you will be forgiven. Given you will receive. Your gift will return to you in full, pressed down, shaken together to make room for more, running over and poured into your lap. The amount you give will determine the amount you get back. You join now in a responsive reading. God, you root those who trust in you by streams of healing water. Release us from the bonds of disease. Free us from the power of evil. And turn us from falsehood and illusion that we may find the blessing of new life in you. 
through the power of Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, the gifts that you give, the gifts that you've shared with us, you instruct us to give back. Lord, we ask that the gifts that we give today be blessed, that they be given with an open heart, and that they be you, that you guide us in their use so that others may come to know you and learn the absolute joy of being a part of your family. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. God is good, isn't he? Okay, we're going to, uh, we're going to cover chapter 7, which is the flood account. Um, and I'm going to do as I've done um, often, where we don't read the whole chapter before we start. I'll just take it uh, a piece at a time. So we're going to start with Genesis chapter 7, 1 through 4. Um, the Lord said to Noah, Okay, we do have it up here. Go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. Take with you seven of every kind of clean animal, a male and its mate, and two of every kind of unclean animal, a male and its mate, and also seven of every kind of bird, male and female, to keep their various kinds alive through, throughout the earth. Seven days from now I will send rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights, and I will wipe from the face of the earth every living creature I have made. So, again, we see that God um, says that Noah is righteous. Um, and that's the reason that Noah is spared. And we're certainly glad that he was spared. Um, it's also interesting in this that right from the beginning, God makes a distinction between clean and unclean animals. That doesn't show up, actually, until Exodus uh, when it is codified in, in, you know, in the law of, in, to, to the nation of Israel. But the clean and unclean animals actually goes all the way back to creation. That's what we're, that's what we're learning about here. And something I want to say of, of, we talked about it last week a little bit, the word kinds, where it's take with you seven, seven of every kind of clean animal, that what that actually means is it's a, uh, we don't know exactly, but it could and probably does mean a family of animals. We talked about that last week. But just to give you an illustration of that, um, we wouldn't have to take every uh, kind of dog that there is on the ark. We could take one, you know, one pair of, uh, uh, of canine, and then from those, from that, family of canine would come all kinds of different dogs in. So that's what we're talking about, that we didn't have to have every single 
type of dog on the ark, okay? And also, um, it's, it's interesting in verse 2, says here, take with you seven of every kind of clean animal. Um, and this is the, uh, the text that I, I have up here on the screen is an NIV version. And I've looked at the newer versions, and it says uh, seven pairs. So, uh, and the word in the Hebrew is actually, uh, it actually literally means seven sevens. And, oh, you know, the question is, what does that mean? Well, um, more recent translators are saying it means seven pairs of clean animals. Okay? So, okay, going on to verse 5. And Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters came on the earth. He was just a young guy. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives entered the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Pairs of clean and unclean animals, of birds and all creatures that move along the ground, male and female, came to Noah and entered the ark as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the floodwaters came on the earth. So Noah said, it says in scripture that Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, when he was 500 years old, and then the floodwaters came when he was 600 years old. And apparently, um, there were, he didn't have, you know, his, his kids, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, didn't have uh, children by that time. They were married, we know, because they take their wives on, but apparently they, they did, well, we know that they didn't have by that time. Also, it says that it took seven days for the animals to enter the ark and for Noah and his family to load up all the food that was necessary, okay? They had to take not only enough, you know, just while the, for the 40 days and 40 nights, but they had to take enough food to last the whole time. So it's a lot of food. And the parade that of these animals entering the ark um, we talked about it last week, that there were 4,500 4, animals, okay? And if you take that at five foot per animal, that's 4.26 miles long. But if that seven refers to seven pair of clean animals, then we have 14 of, of all the clean animals. Um, so that would have been 7.5 miles long. <laughs> okay. So can you imagine a parade of, you know, an, an average of five foot long of, of seven and a half miles of animals entering into the ark. So it took a while. It took seven days to get all them in there, and they had to get all the food. Uh, beetles didn't take up much space, but elephants did. <laughs> you know, so, so you had, you know, you had little, little tiny bugs and stuff, and then, but then you had some huge animals as well. So even if we say that there were seven pair of animals, that would be 8,000 um, 8, animals on, the, on, the, uh, on board. And if we figure 30 cubic foot per animal, that would be 240,000 cubic feet. And as we mentioned, there's 2,236,860 cubic feet available on the ark. Okay? So that's 9.3 cubic foot per animal. So if you take a, you know, a space that's 9 foot this way and 9 foot that way and 9 foot all, 
nine foot tall, then that's how much space is required for each of the animals. So all, that's, all that is to say that there, there was plenty of room on the ark for all the animals. Because that's one of the arguments that's used. How did all those animals that we have today, how did they all, you know, the million point, 1.3 million species that we have today, how did they all get on the ark? Well, um, there were only, you know, at maximum 8,000 uh, animals, uh, if we take, uh, if we're talking about a, um, uh, you know, talking about a family of species, okay? Okay, verse 11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, that's getting pretty specific there, isn't it? On that day, all the springs of the great deep burst forth, and the floodgates of the heavens were open, and rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. Okay? So, one of the issues is then, and we'll talk about this later, where did all that water come from? And what this is saying is that there, water came forth, um, the, there were great deeps that burst forth, that subterranean water that came forth, and also uh, water, you know, over the earth. Uh, some people feel and postulate that there was a canopy of water vapor over the earth, and that collapsed, and that's how we got the flood. So we, we don't really know, but that's one theory. Um, and... So, but it all depends on these, on these phrases, springs of the great deep burst forth, and floodgates of the heaven open. Okay? Um, one commentator says of that phrase, he says, springs of the great deep and windows of heaven are poetic phrases, suggesting water gushing forth uncontrollably from wells and springs which draw from a great subterranean ocean, that would be the great deep, and an unrestrained downpour from the sky. So, you know, so what we're looking at is, you know, <clears throat> this just an incredible amount of water raining for 40 days and for 40 nights. And not only raining, but coming up from the ground as well. Verse 30, or 13, I'm sorry. On that very day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, together with his wife, and the wives of his three sons, entered the ark. Okay? That's what we're saying. Uh, that apparently there were no children. They had with them every wild animal according to its kind, all livestock according to their kinds, every creature that moves along the ground according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, everything with wings. Pairs of all creatures that have the breath of life in them came to Noah and entered the ark. The animals going in were male and female, of every living thing as God had commanded Noah. Then the Lord shut him in. So it's kind of interesting that um, Noah doesn't close the door, okay? He opens the door when, when they disembark, but Noah doesn't close the door. God himself closes the door. Uh, interesting little phrase. And inside the mark, then, were every kind of wild animal, all livestock. So wild animal would be, you know, lions and tigers and all of the different... Uh, all the different wild animals, all livestock, cows, and you know, so on. But again, you didn't have to have all the cows, you just had, you know, uh, a representative of them. Every creeping thing, everything that creeps along the earth, and every bird, everything with wings. So all these were on the boat. For 40 days, the flood kept coming on the earth, and as the waters increased, they lift the ark high above the earth. 
The waters rose and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. They rose greatly on the earth, and all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. The waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 20 feet. So then it says that even the highest mountains, that the water was 20 feet higher than the highest mountains. We'll talk about more about that later. Okay, verse 21. Every living thing that moved on the earth perished. Birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that swarm over the earth, and all mankind. Everything, absolutely everything was destroyed. Everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. Men and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds of the air were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. The waters flooded the earth for 150 days. So the waters flooded the earth for 150 days or five months, okay? They were using a lunar calendar, which is 30 days uh, per month. And then at the end of 150 days, the water had receded enough that the tops of the mountains were visible. But they, Noah and his family stayed on the ark for 377 days. We, we know exactly, because the text tells us exactly how long they were on the, on the earth, okay? Or in the ark. Five days floating, okay? And then seven and a half months grounded on the mountain. And apparently, um, there were no births or deaths on the ark. The same number departed as entered the ark. And all those on the ark were spared. And so some people um, speculate that the animals hibernated. Uh, you know, we, we don't know, but perhaps they hibernated during that time. Um, and I mean, they couldn't, they couldn't get out and exercise, right? right. So, so they've got to be in some kind of enclosure uh, while they're on the ark. Okay, so what I'd like to talk about is, um, is the flood itself. There's a lot of controversy around the flood and, you know, was this real and all that. A lot of people speculating that it, it was uh, uh, just a, a story, a myth, and so on. So I want to talk about that somewhat. Um, and it used to be, and we talked about this uh, a number of weeks ago, um, that it used to be that people thought that you could either be a Christian or a thinker. Okay? Uh, either you could be a thinking person and an educated person, or you could be a Christian. You could be one of those dummies that, that you know, that, that don't think about things, you know, and... Uh, you could be a Bible-thumping believer or modern and scientific. How many of you have heard that? You know, you know that, that, kind of, that kind of accusation toward us as Christians is that we're just not very, we don't think much. We just believe it. Well, there's been enough research and writing in all areas of, of, you know, of, of knowledge, cosmology, paleontology, genetics, biology, hydrology, anthropology, geology, that confirm the Bible account. We can't explain everything, but they confirm the Bible account that we no longer, as Christians, have to hang our heads and say, well, okay, I just believe it. And that settles it. Um, you know, we don't have to do that anymore as Christians. We can hold our heads and we can say, 
um, you know, science and the Bible are complementary. They work together. And we don't have to hang our heads in shame that, well, okay, uh, you know, if I were scientific, I would, I would be able to prove that the Bible doesn't exist. And a lot of us went through schooling like that, didn't we? Especially the universities. The universities uh, mostly teach, not, you know, not all the universities, not everybody in the university, but generally they teach that we can't believe the biblical story. Okay? Now, we can't explain everything yet, and we may never be able to explain scientifically everything, but there's enough evidence to support the biblical text that, that those who discount it have to rely on either illogical reasoning or unscientific evidence stemming from secular assumptions. And really what it amounts to is, is where you start, the assumptions you start with, okay? And we as Christians, we say, we start with the biblical text. We believe that, that what God wrote in the Word of God is, is true. Now, we can't explain everything, but neither can those who doubt it explain everything. You know, so, so we have to say, um, okay, we, we, we can't explain everything, but when it all comes down to it, um, fact after fact is confirmed that the Bible is, is, is speaking truth, okay? Science is on our side. And as we mentioned before, you find some top scientists in church, okay? I've known some of them. We have a friend that we, uh, we're in a, in a book club together. His name is Jim. And he is a top scientist. He graduated from uh, MIT with a PhD in, in physics. And he's, he believes the Bible, you know, and, and I've known other uh, really good scientists, and they believe the biblical account. So I'm just saying that to say that we don't, you know, there's been enough research and enough evidence that what the Bible says is true, that we can, we can have confidence now that the biblical text, even though we can't explain everything, that it is true. Dr. Francis Collins said this, science really is only legitimately able to comment on things that are part of nature. And science is really good at that. But if you're going to try to take the tools of science and disprove God, you're in the wrong territory. Science has to remain silent on the question of anything that falls outside of the natural world. In other words, what, what it's saying is this, and I've quoted this before, this, this particular quote, but is that science is really good at explaining the natural order and how things happen and you know, figuring out how things happen, but science cannot touch the things that we see in the Bible, like where does life begin and, and where did, you know, how, how people happy and you know, all the things that, the big questions, science cannot answer those, but that's where the Bible comes in. So, the big issue, that this chapter brings up is this. Was the flood universal or more localized? Okay? And that's, you know, that, there's, um, you know, there's a lot of controversy around that. People say, well, there couldn't have been a flood. All right? 
or it couldn't have been a global flood. So there's four different interpretations, four different th ways that people have explained the flood. One of them is that it is a global flood. It covered all the earth uh, to, you know, 20 feet above all the mountaintops. The other is that it covered, the flood covered all of the known world at that time. So when they said all, it was referring to the, the world that they knew. Uh, third is that the flood was localized, it, or it was regional, in the Mediterranean basin and so on. And then the last is, it was just a local flood. Okay, so, so I'd like to talk about the arguments for a global flood. And this is where I, you know, I would put my chips is on a global flood that it covered all the earth, okay? And where do we get that? Genesis 7, 4 says, seven days from now I will send rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights, and I will wipe from the face of the earth every living creature I have made. Okay? That sure sounds like it's global, doesn't it? Every living creature. Uh, verse 19, they rose greatly on the earth, that is the waters, and all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. That sure sounds like it's global, doesn't it? Um, verse 23, every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. Everything. Men and animals and the creatures that move along the ground, the birds of the air were wiped from the earth. Only Noah's left and those with him in the ark. That certainly sounds like it was global. Covered the whole earth. Genesis 8, 4. On the seven, and on the 17th day of the seventh month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. Okay, so it, it you know, it, it <coughs> the, the uh, mountain range of Ararat. Um, I remember when we were in the Peace Corps, and we, we took a uh, train from, no, I'm sorry, this was a bus we took from Erzurum out in the eastern part of Turkey, and then we went to the western part of Turkey. And as we passed by Mount Ararat, we went right, at, and I just remember so many, you know, Turks saying to us, Mount Ararat's up there, you know, the ark is up there, and they really believed it, so <laughs> you know, who knows. Uh, whether, we don't exactly know where Mount Ararat was, but the Turks think they know anyway. So, <laughs> Genesis 9:11. I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be cut off by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. Again, the language that we see in Scripture, um, you pretty much have to come to the, the point of view that it includes all of the earth. Uh, 9.14, whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Okay? Now, if we take that literally then, we say that um, it, if there were a local flood, then we have to say God is lying, right? Because this is talking about all waters destroying all life. If it just was a local flood, then we've had lots of local floods, okay? But we haven't had a global flood. Okay, so another evidence um, for a universal flood comes from fossil evidence. Uh, you know what fossil research is and paleontology and all that? It's, it's studying the fossils. And... And so you have to ask the question, why did the dinosaurs die suddenly? Why are there mammoths found in North America and Siberia? 
And why when we find, we, what we find in paleontology and in, um, in the study of fossils is a sudden freezing of many life forms at 175 degrees below zero temperatures. So, and they've been, they found many mammoths with food still in their mouths. They suffocated to death. And they had subtropical vegetation partly eaten in their mouths. So if that's true, and those are found all over the earth, then we have to say it must have been a, a, a universal flood. Why is subtropical vegetation found in Antarctica? A hundred miles, a hundred miles from the South Pole. Subtropical. And another piece of uh, fossil evidence is what we call the Cambri Cambrian explosion. That what we find in, in, the, uh, you know, in the fossil record is that there is a, an explosion in the Cambrian era. A sudden explosion of fossils. And one of the best explanations for that is that there was a flood that came and it quickly buried um, you know, these animals. And we also see coal and oil formations. Coal and oil all over the earth. And where did that come from? It comes from the compressing, rapid compressing of animal and plant life. And that's what we find. You know, that's where we get all our coal and our oil formations. And we see fossil graveyards there where, where there's just a jumbling of, uh, of what we would say, you know, if we, if we believed in evolutionism, we would say, that they, we would not find them together, all these species. Okay, some other evidence of a universal flood. Uh, the size of the ark. The ark was big enough that it couldn't have been designed for a local flood. It, the need for an ark. If the flood were local, why send Noah outside of the flood zone? Why not? I mean, why not send him outside of the flood zone? If it were just local, God would have said, well, just, you know, all you have to do is go 200 miles this direction and, you know, you'll be fine. And then uh, we talked about this uh, last week a, a bit. But in Matthew 24, verse 37, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Up to the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. So Jesus compares the universal uh, destruction of all mankind with his coming when, the, when the, there will be a new heaven and a new earth established. Well, if that's the case, then both had to be universal, right? Okay. Then there's the testimony of Peter. And Peter compared the flood of Noah with the final coming of the Lord. 2 Peter 3, 3 and following. First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is his coming? He promised. Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters, also the world at that time was deluged and destroyed. 
by the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Again, Peter compares the destruction during Noah's time to the destruction at the end when the new heavens and new earth are created. One more piece of evidence is the uniform subtropical climate over the whole earth. We talked about finding animal rains and, and uh, subtropical vegetation all over the earth. Well, if that's the case, then there, it must have had a very different climate before the flood, the whole earth. And then last thing is that there are flood stories from all around the world. Uh, Dwayne Gish in his Dinosaurs by Design said this, there are 270 stories from different cultures around the world about a devastating flood. Uh, do we have, do the next, okay, I'll wait, I'll, I'll, I'll uh, read this. The chart shows the similarities that several myths have with the Genesis account of Noah's flood. Although there are varying degrees of accuracy, these legends and stories all contain similarities to aspects of the same historical event, Noah's flood. Okay, next slide. There it is. Okay, uh, these, are, these are some of the, uh, it's a listing of these universal flood stories from all over the world, different cultures. And I won't go through all of it, but just to point out that um, <clears throat> there's a, so many similarities between the flood accounts from all over the earth and the flood account that we find in, Noah, um, uh, in the Bible text. So for example, universal destruction is found in almost all of those, um, those flood stories, Assyrio-Babylonian, Assyrio-Babylonian II, Persian, Syrian, Asia Minor, and so on, okay? So all over the world, we find flood stories that resemble the biblical account. And we wouldn't see that if there weren't a universal kind of flood that took place and affected people from all over the earth. Okay. The next uh, theory about how widespread the flood was is that it, it covered all the known world. And this is one of the commentators that that I consult, this is his view. And he says this, this position believes that the flood was universal relative to the world known to the audience of the Old Testament. So when it says that the, the flood covered the whole earth, it meant that everything that they, in their known world. So when it says that, that all flesh, it was all flesh in that particular area were destroyed. Um, but it did not, so it was a massive flood, but didn't include other continents or areas of the world such as China. In the Mesopotamian worldview, the known world was comprised of a single continent fringed with mountains. Okay, so when the readers of this biblical account then, when they heard this and read this account, the known world was a single continent fringed with mountains the Zagros Mountains in the east, and the mountains of Arad in the north. So that it didn't include the whole earth, but it included the whole earth as far as they were concerned. Am I making myself clear? Is that getting... <laughs> Am I just confusing you with this? 
So the word all is not absolute. It can mean in all the known world at that time. So, <clears throat> the, and <clears throat> the biggest argument against a global flood, and this is those who talk you know, with one of the other views, is that there, where did all the water come from? That's the issue. How did we get all, all, you know, enough water to cover the whole earth 20 miles above the highest mountain peaks? Where did the water come from? That's the big problem that people have. The sea would have had to have risen 16,946 feet all over the planet earth. That would require 630 million cubic miles of additional water weighing three quintillion tons. The ocean would have to triple in volume in only 150 days and then quickly shrink back to normal. That's the problem. That's what, we, that's what we have a hard time explaining. The rain clouds cannot possibly hold even a tenth of 1% of the water required by the conventional interpretation of the flood story. So that's where they're going. All right. Now, as I say, we can't explain everything but, and we can't explain where all that water comes from and came from, um, and we have trouble explaining it, but everything that we see other than that says it was a global flood, universal, it covered the whole earth. <clears throat> so the sea would have had to rise at the rate of 100 foot per day all over the earth. And it would have to recede 17,000 feet in 75 days. All right? So, there are some problems. Um, I think I'll leave it at, at that. So, so then there's um, the view that it was regional, that the flood was centered in the Tigris-Euphrates valleys, the Mediterranean basin, or the area of the Black Sea, that it was just a local kind of a regional uh, in the Mediterranean area, and then the local view that it wiped out several towns along the river. Okay, so anyway, I, as I said, I, 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 I would hold to the universal flood because I think there's an awful lot of evidence that would that would say it was a universal flood. But saying that, there are some problems scientifically that we haven't, we some things that we haven't come up with yet. So there's a lot that we don't know, but there are biblical explanations which agree with both science and the Bible to explain many of the problems which have been encountered. We just can't answer everything at this point. Okay. So what do we learn from this chapter? Um, and the biggest issue that I see in this chapter 7 of Genesis is God's justice. And the question is, why did God destroy all flesh? Every human being except for eight, and all, all animals. And, and furthermore, why did he destroy all animals? What, you know, what did they do? So this is a question that's going to come up. If you're talking to somebody about a relationship with Christ, they're probably going to bring up something like this. God is just, even though we can't always see or understand his justice. That really is the, is the answer. 
God is absolutely and perfectly just. We may not understand it all. We may not understand his justice, but we believe that God is just, that it was the very best thing, and the only thing that God could have done was to destroy all flesh. And when we contemplate God's anger with the antediluvian people, the people at that time, we have to say that what he did was absolutely just and righteous, even though we can't understand it, that if we could really see it from God's perspective, we would say, okay, we agree. Uh, Isaiah 55, Seek the Lord while he may be found, call on him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God, for he will freely pardon. And then these verses, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So, so and we, we, we face this in a lot of instances, don't we? That we say, God, we trust in you. We can't explain everything, and we can't understand everything, but we trust that you are a good God. And we trust that if we could really see it from your perspective, we would agree with it. <laughs> I mean, that's really what we come down to in a lot of instances. And, th you know, that's an explanation for <clears throat> where did all that water come from? We don't know, Lord, but we trust you. And why did you kill all flesh on the earth at that time? Well, we don't know exactly why you did that, but everything else that we've known about you, we can say we trust in God. God is good. And we understand that God's ways and God's thoughts are higher than our ways and thoughts. And we, we don't understand everything, but we, but we do know the person who knows. And I don't know about you, but I've seen in my life, the more, the, the more that I learn about God's ways and how he thinks and his thoughts and ways and so on, the more that I go, you know what? God really is, I mean, he's, he's the most intelligent being. He created all of us. He created the earth. And he is good. I can't explain it all, but I know that God is good. Genesis 6.5, The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. And I think if we, if we could have seen that, we would have gone, yeah, right, you're right, Lord. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth and his heart was filled with pain. So I think if we understood God completely, uh, we would say, yes, Lord, you're absolutely right. That was the way to do it. And, and then um, I read a A.W. Tozer. Uh, you read him, Tozer. Um, very, very popular uh, very good theologian. And he says this, justice, and he was talking about God's justice, okay? He says this, justice is not something that God has. So we can't really say God is just. Justice is something, he says, that God is. All right? It's not that there's something outside of justice and God conforms to that justice thing that principle of justice, it is that God himself is just, and we understand justice 
because we understand God. Am I getting, getting through on that? You understand what I mean? His character is absolutely just. Actually, his character defines what justice is. Justice is not something outside of God, like a principle to which God must conform. His thoughts, values, hearts, and actions are just because God cannot be anything but just. He is absolute justice. And God acts justly from within, not in obedience to some imaginary law. He's the author of all laws and acts like himself all the time. So the issue comes up then, um, that we contrast in our thinking, we can't put together justice and mercy in the same, you know, in the same person, in the same kind of uh, God. How could God be just and judge sin and merciful and forgive sin? How can you do that? Well, Tozer says it this way, God's justice and his mercy are not two separate qualities which God possesses. God's justice and God's mercy do not quarrel with each other. We must not think of God as composed of parts working harmoniously. We must think of God as one, because God is one. God's attributes never quarrel with each other. Everything that God is and does harmonizes with everything else that God does and is. In other words, okay, um, you know, we, we, in our minds, we like to say, well, you know, God is just, he judged all people, and then God sends Jesus, and he's merciful. And I've heard this, I've heard this from many, you know, many different times, that, um, you know, this angry God in the Old Testament, angry and, and, and just and demanding uh, and in wrath and all that kind, and then he kind of softens and we get Jesus. <laughs> you know, well, Jesus is the good God. You know, he's the good side of God. And the Old Testament God is the wrath of God. And so, you know, and so we kind of have this schizophrenic idea of who God is. And what Tozer is saying is that that is not true. That God, in judging those people, in judging the whole earth and destroying the whole earth, was as much merciful as he was just. He was showing as much mercy as he was showing justice. And when he sent Jesus, he was showing as much justice and being just in his wrath as he was in being merciful to the sinner. Do you get what I'm saying? Okay? So we can't say that God, there, you know, he's... Um, the Old Testament God is wrathful and mean and nasty, and the New Testament God is good and merciful and loving and all that sort of stuff. That, that's, you can't go there, because God is a unitary. He is both just and merciful at the same time, in the same way. That's who God is. And I think we face this a lot today. A lot of young people have a real problems. Uh, I've, I've, you know, and the young people I've talked to, they have a real problem. They say, you know, I can, I can get Jesus. I can understand this Jesus. You know, he was good and loving and all that kind of stuff, but I can't understand the God of the Old Testament. And so they'll ask us, how can, how can you believe in a God who does, who would destroy all living things? And part, you know, just a partial answer to that 
is that God was being as merciful then as he was in sending Jesus. And God is not divided. God, God is not showing one side of him here and the other side of him here. God is unitary. He is, he is a God who, in both things, God is both just and merciful. So we can't say, we can say that we don't understand why God wiped out all living creatures in the flood. And, and we can't say that God changed his mind and sent Jesus. All right. So what is it that God, you know, and we have the wrathful God in the Old Testament, and then God changed his mind and he sent Jesus. We also can't say that God's mercy and his justice are in opposition to each other. God's mercy and God's justice are part of who he is. And the flood was as much God's mercy as it was his justice. Christ on the cross exemplified both God's mercy and his justice. He was just in pouring out his wrath upon Jesus. And we can't say, say I just don't like that kind of God. <laughs> and you get people like that, don't you? That, you know, I don't want a God who would do that kind of thing. Well, that's, that's a distortion of who God is. We may not like that God destroyed all living creatures on earth, but that is who he is, and that is what he has done. And we need to grow an understanding of him and his ways so that we can love him, not in spite of what he has done, in wiping out all mankind, but because of who he is and what he has done. So the bottom line is this. The deficiency is in us and our understanding, not in God and his nature and character. Okay, let me repeat that. What it all comes down to is that we don't understand it we can't put it together, but that's our deficiency. It's not God's deficiency, it's our de deficiency. We don't see it yet. We don't have it put together. It's not in God, not in God's character. God is a good God, God is a merciful God, as well as, in, not in spite of, but as well as a just and wrathful God at the same time.
Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word today, for these things that scientifically we can't quite understand, but for the faith to know that you are all in one, that the, the wrath, the mercy, the love, the actions are all together and all as one. So Lord, let us continue that faith and that love for you as you have shown that love for us. This we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.